But then I first met, actually, when he was at Honda, what, five years ago, I think, when he and his yeah. colleagues led some really interesting additive manufacturing projects in the aviation space. Maybe we could talk about that during this episode. I'm not sure. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can dive into that for a second. But now, Ben is even more involved in changing the additive manufacturing landscape. Why? Because he joined Ohio State. And there he's leading some really interesting and cutting-edge research that we'll dive deeper into during this conversation. He's working on ladder structures. He's working on process monitoring, on part qualification, various other technologies, and even workforce development, obviously. And the last time I went to the America Makes MMX event, he also was awarded the Ambassador Award, which I can only confirm is very well deserved because he is a key ambassador to the industry. So without further ado, let's get started. Ben, my friend, welcome to Add a Snack. I mean, nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And thank you for the kind introduction. I'm humbled. Yeah, well deserved. So let's actually start at your career at Honda. That's where we met, but you've been there even before we met. What were your first projects in the space of additive manufacturing and what other projects did you work on that you are able to talk about? Yeah, so I started at Honda. I spent about nine years working there and I started as a brake system design engineer. And so I was designing Hmm. brake systems and I was using additive as a tool rather than additive is my life. So I was using additive to 3D print cores for brake rotors, to print brackets for mock-ups on the vehicle. So I started on the automotive side and was really harnessing these design skills. And this was in the early 2011, 12, 13 range to design brake systems and and using additive. That's kind of my professional career. That's where it started. And you changed positions at Honda and then moved into a different department, right? Yeah, pretty unique opportunity. Uh, My wife and I, in 2018, we moved down to North Carolina to join the Honda Aerospace Division, uh, still under the Honda R&D Development Group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the focus was uh, gas turbine engine. So there's the Honda Jet, if you look it up. Uh, We manufactured the gas turbine engine. And so my role there was the lead process engineer and Really, I was the first engineer on the ground in that facility for additive manufacturing and conducting research for additive manufacturing. Yeah, and that's where we met. I remember I got the chance to go to Japan uh, for this project, but you had your first child and you had to miss out on that trip. So that was a very, very fun fun experience for uh, for the U.S. team. Let me ask you this before we jump into uh, some of your research. You worked at, at Honda for a while and you you worked on additive projects that were from my perspective, at least, very innovative and mm-hmm. they were challenging the status quo at Honda. What were some of those key challenges and learnings that you that you took away from that position and those projects? Yeah, so, you know, if you think of any Japanese OEM, whether it's automotive or aerospace, they're very, very thought out. So first of all, it was additive is new, right? It was new for us uh, in 2012. It was new for us in 2018. It's still new for us today. So embracing this new and changing technology, uh, that was the first challenge, right? It's machine in 2014 is not the same machine in 2024, right? There's some changes Mm -hmm. there. So evolving with the industry while still maintaining our 
high focus on quality and attention to detail at Honda. That was a that was a challenge. On the application side and on the research side, the Japanese companies tend to work very much in their environment. And so for a while, I just, you know, I worked with my team internally as we were doing research. And I think when we first met was 2018 mm-hmm. and really learning very quickly from those that are in the industry and trying to understand from their journey, how can we help our journey at Honda to do metal additive, right? We had Honda been doing plastic additive. I think they had over 20 printers in the United States and then, you know, obviously Japan. And so they were doing additive for a long time, but as we kind of ventured into the metal additive, there's a lot of things that you need to think about is, is my process. What are the limitations of the process? What material are we going to pick? So Mm -hmm. we were making, you know, I felt very fortunate to be helping set some of these key strategies. It was a lot of responsibility as a younger mid senior engineer, younger engineer, and then growing into that role. But for me, you know, what a great opportunity, right? It was almost a clean slate and, you know, from buying capital equipment to finding our first application, things like that. It was a lot of fun. It was very much up and down the highs and the lows and yeah, a great, great journey. Yeah, I remember uh, all of it. It was uh, a very, very uh, unique and an innovative project. And now that you're at uh, Ohio State, you also get to build new developments and new ideas from the from the ground up. One that I think is very interesting is that you're working on a on a lattice library, if I'm not mistaken. And and I think it's important to point out you're juggling many many additive balls <laughs> at the at the same time. And one of them is this uh, lattice library. We'll talk about the rest as well. What is that project all about? And while you're at it, can you also take us through some of the key characteristics of lattice structures? Why are you looking at building a library? What are the, the, the key success factors there? And what is the impact really on, on the industry out there? Yeah, it was actually the project I was hired on uh, when I started at OSU. It was my first research project, and we've been carrying it along and developing new research every year around it. So the focus originally was to develop test standards around lattice material. Um, mm-hmm. These could be strut or BCC or gyroid. Not a lot of test standards exist. And I remember I gave my first uh, presentation at a conference, uh, maybe 2021, on this lattice topic. And one of the questions came from the audience is, why are you focusing on tension? Everyone tests compression in lattices. And I said, well, yeah, that's exactly why we're doing this. There's no tension data that's available. So most of the data that was available was compression data. So we started to develop a data set for stainless steel lattice uh, data with the FDA through an America Makes project. We were also looking at other modes like bending and shear and torsion and and trying to develop a standard specimen. Most people Mm -hmm. are familiar with ASTM E8 for testing tension and you know, other test standards for fatigue. Well, can I test my lattice using that same coupon design? At the time, the answer wasn't clear and we're getting closer. You know, how many lattice nodes do I need? How many cells do I need? Right. It's not really a one size fits all. This specimen tests all lattices. And we kind of learned that through the research, you know, like what strut size and what are the performance characteristics? And those kind of things became more clear as we worked through them. And the, the other interesting part is we were getting information and feedback from industry primes like Lockheed and, and mm-hmm. other people that are 
looking at this in high critical applications so that let's say they use a software like Entopology or Materialize or Siemens and they want to apply a lattice. Well, what does that software give them, right? If it says, I want this lattice. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they go print it. What does it give them? Sometimes they don't even know, like if, if you specify a one millimeter strut, will it actually give that to me? Does it give me a fillet? Does it give me a radius? So characterizing the actual material and the geometry that's printed was part of the challenge as well. Very interesting. So the impact on industry really is to, to accelerate application developments that are thinking about leveraging Lattice for various reasons, reducing design of experiments, efforts, and getting closer to part properties that are intended from the initial designer. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, I think the bigger question is, how can we get closer to a, a qualification approach or a rapid mm -hmm. qualification approach? You know, we have a lot of history of, say, titanium or other materials and that are built in the bulk form, whether it's from a forging or a casting or you know, a billet piece that people may be more familiar with. There's not as much test data out there with these lattice components. And... Maybe there's a bunch of material at the bottom and then it gets really thin at the top. And now my thermal profile is different and the stress, the stresses in my part are different. Well, how do we test that? How do we verify it? Right? So if we, if we really want to unlock the potential of using additive and design for additive, we also have to be able to test it. So we were trying to build, and we are still trying to build a semi-empirical model, right? Mm -hmm. Build some parts, test them update a simulation model, build some more parts, test them, update the simulation model. Now switch to another material. And as you can imagine, going from a titanium to a high-strength aluminum to a stainless steel, the behavior is going to be much different. Yeah. And so it really depends on what your application is. And are you using this for a, a loaded structure? Are you using this for a heat exchanger? Are you using this in the human body? There's so many different applications that the the loading conditions and the constraints and the requirements really need to be thought out. Super interesting. What's your, what's your timeline on this? I mean, how long have you been working on it? And um, is there a certain milestone that you're trying to reach right now? So a mentor of mine, Ed Herderick, wrote the initial proposal in 2020. We're obviously four years, 2024 now. Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, we're still doing it. We're still talking with a lot of these key industry primes Some of the work we're doing, we can't talk about because it's uh, you know under under NDA with the customer, and they have very specific applications. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the publicly funded work is available to America Makes members. Uh, the first two or three projects that we worked on, we published that work there. Uh, we're going to be working toward a much larger project over the next two to three years, where we try to do a multi-year effort. Like I said, the entire holistic process from the DFAM that everyone's excited about, right? Let's use design for additive all the way to the actual application, right? What's the part? And we want to, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, steps in between making a, a really cool DFAM part to actually getting a part that's printed and, you know, thrown up on a rocket or, or, you know, on an airplane or wherever you want to send it in a body. If you really want to unlock the potential, that's that full holistic model is, is really needed. Makes a lot of sense. A lot of work. And that is your, I mean, your, your day job. At night, I know that you are uh, working on your PhD thesis. Nights, weekends, probably after this uh, this conversation. <laughs> mornings. Um, <laughs> mornings, yeah. yeah. 
And that is uh, mainly all around process monitoring. And there's obviously many different process monitoring technologies out there, especially when we talk about metal additive manufacturing uh, from OT, so optical tomography, which will use as a high-resolution infrared camera that measures the energy input over uh, a long exposure. Then there's melt pool monitoring, where we measure the the energy intensity of the melt pool itself. There's just standard camera solutions out there that visually inspect for uh, for short feeding. Can you give us an, a better idea on what you're working on and also what the current landscape of available monitoring solutions provides and what it's missing? Okay. So, yeah. So your question around using in-process monitoring and kind of why I've chosen to study this field for my PhD is we have to turn a lot of data into okay. information. And yeah. my goal is, can we develop tools, methods, abilities to have this in-process monitoring data, these large data sets, can we, can we turn it into tangible information to make decisions? Mm-hmm. You know, think about the red light, yellow light, green light. Uh, as you're driving, green light, you know, you're not even thinking about it. It's second nature. You're still going. Yellow light, you have one of two ways. You either stop and slow down or you accelerate and keep going. And obviously, how long has that yellow light been there, right? Is it a couple layers or is it just turning yellow? So that's the sensitivity of Mm -hmm. when it goes from green to yellow is important. And then obviously, when it goes to red, right, things are really off the the road here where, where we have a red light, we have to stop or we have to really assess where we're at. And so using that red light, yellow light, green light, very simple analogy, can we apply that to our additive processes? And it doesn't just have to be powder bed. It can be any other process that we're doing in the additive manufacturing field is, can we use the sensor data? Can we use the information to be a little bit more predictive and make slight adjustments, right? So one thing that I'm really interested in is using this technology called long wave IR is the simple abbreviation, Mm -hmm. but just taking a snapshot of the temperature of your powder bed, each layer. And almost, again, going back to the car analogy, I'm a car guy, is can we develop a cruise control, right? Is, okay, I'm printing TIE 6.4. I know I should print in this temperature range. Oh, as I get close to failure, my temperature starts to rise for my bed temperature. Welding engineers know this as interlayer temperature or interpass temperature. Mm -hmm. So can we use that to inform the people, the process. And again, it's going to be a little bit different probably for each material, but that's that's kind of, again, going back to the, the analogy and the PhD and the focus is, can we develop some cruise control to help reduce failures and turn data into information from the process side? Long-winded mm-hmm. answer. Again, I think we could spend the entire podcast talking more deeply about this, but hopefully yeah, no. that gives you something to chew on. Yeah, let's double click on that for a second. So you're using a long wave IR system to identify the build temperature on on each layer. What does your process exactly look like in order to get to a point where you can run predictive analytics on the composition of of each layer and the the part itself? I'm going to maybe answer it a little bit on the lower level side and say, For those listening, they probably, let's talk about powder bed fusion. 
they've probably heard that your layer needs to be 30 seconds long, or if it's shorter than that, you have a high risk for build failure in powder bed fusion. Not always, but again, it's the rule of thumb. Well, if you look, there's not a lot of data that proves that statement, Mm -hmm. but realistically what you're doing is you're monitoring a change in delta temperature or delta T. And let's say I'm at layer 100 and my temperature is 100 degrees. And then my layer time is 30 seconds. And then as I go longer throughout the build, maybe my layer time decreases. The part's getting smaller or something. And now my layer time is at 10 seconds. Now all of a sudden I'm at 150 degrees. So I have this much shorter time in between layers. My temperature is starting to rise. And what we're trying to say is, can you can you use that rise in temperature to say, whoa, wait a minute, you're getting a little bit close to the edge. This build's about to fail. And again, we go back to the rule of thumb. Oh, your layer should be 30 seconds of long before each layer. Well, can we add a pause? And a pause could mean anything from five seconds to a minute to two minutes. So those are some of the things that we're looking at and we're studying is what is the effect of dwell time? If I let my layer cool a little bit to get it back under temperature and it's, it's like cruise control, right? It's a derivative. It's, it's staying under the curve of whatever that max temperature is for that material. And again, I'm, I'm trying to answer it on a lower level just so it's, we can go pretty deep into here in the process physics and, and things like that. But again, identify what the max temperature is for your, for your material and then start to develop your process window around a temperature window. Okay. I think that it would be fun to do a separate uh, episode on, on just that. Uh, Cause uh, we could, as you said, we could talk for hours uh, on this topic, which maybe we should, but speaking of speed, there's another very interesting project that you are working on. And I recently also, so you guys had a fun post from, from form next where you were standing in front of an, M290 AMCM N-Lite system, which is going to Ohio State, and where you are working on some interesting research. Can you give us a bit of an overview on why N-Lite? What is N-Lite? And what are you guys trying to do? So we've been doing N-Lite research for a couple of years now. We met N-Lite back in 2021. Most people, they're a laser company. So if you go Google N-Lite, you know, you might see some of their competitors like IPG or Trump or whoever sells lasers in the additive space. Enlight's one of the companies. And Enlight developed this technology called a ring laser, if you can see my hand here. And it's instead of a single spot Gaussian beam profile, they're developing a donut or a ring or many other terms where the energy is dispersed around a, a ring profile. So we call it the ring laser. Again, if you go to Europe or somewhere else, they may call it something different. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing and what we're investigating, and my colleague Austin Tiley was actually the one, uh, if you if you were at Formnext, he was wearing the red suit standing <laughs> next to the EOS uh, AMCM N-Light printer. Uh, he's been doing the research the last two years at OSU. So N-Light was, was very courteous to us. They They donated a laser. They got us started. We were doing preliminary research on our open additive machine, uh, open source, open control machine that we can turn all of the knobs. And so Austin has worked with a couple different materials and we've had some good results. 
promising, exciting results. There's some other academics in the field, Dr. Katrin Woody, who's in Europe. She's been looking at this for quite a while. She's been using the N-Light laser. The biggest question that we've heard, or I'll call it the market signal, is, okay, how do I put this on the machine that I'm using to make my production hardware? And up until the last year or two, there weren't many machines out there that you can go buy this laser with that machine off the shelf. So we worked with AMCM, Enlight, EOS, and OSU. We've been working on talking about this for about a year now. The printer is set to be here in March of 2024. We're, we're very excited uh, to, to see it, you know, working with the M290 platform. And some of our industry customers are excited to see off of a research machine, now that we put this in a machine that they're using in everyday production, can we go two, three, four, ten times faster with this N-Light tech, ring laser technology? Okay, so to talk about the effects of uh, or the impacts of, of N-Lights, uh, really what we're trying to do is to expand the exposure exposure beam in that case in order to, to run uh, over the build envelope faster and therefore speed up processing, but also being able to shape that beam so I can still run uh, edges and contours to still have the desirable upskin and, and really exterior part properties that I'm, I'm looking for. Is that really a very simplified outcome of, uh, of an N-Light system or a ring yeah. laser system? Yeah, yeah. The best analogy I've heard so far, it's like having different size paintbrushes. So... Yeah. Your laser that you're using right now, that's the Gaussian beam, it's the fine paintbrush, right? I'm going to go in and, and color the details around the edges. And then there's, more, there's six different modes. And, you know, in the middle, the paintbrush gets a little bigger, right? And maybe you're doing the trim around your windows and, you know, the trim on your baseboards if you're painting your house. And then the ring is very representative of the roller, right? You're going to go ahead and just paint the big wall really quickly with this big paintbrush, right? You wouldn't want to paint your entire wall with that little paintbrush. So the, the idea is if I can change the shape of my beam, be really small to do the lattice or the contour or the edges, and then in the middle of a big bulk part, just, just use the ring and, and rip through it really fast. Um, but yeah, the ring is going to help you unlock and be able to put more energy in over a larger area and it's going to change that profile um, of, you know, the, again, going from the Gaussian to the ring, your, your energy profile is going to look much different. Yeah. Super interesting uh, technology for speed. There's also other theories around preheating, for example, preheating a certain section, but I think printing speed and therefore pushing closer and closer also into, into the casting space is probably the most interesting aspect what do you expect when it comes to, to challenges? Where do you see the, the biggest hurdles when we're trying to replace conventional laser systems with ring laser or beam shaping type technologies? Well, I have a couple quick answers that I, I would jump up and say, you know, first people don't want you to, like if they're running serial production and additive, it probably took them a lot of time and money to get there. And they're happy with that machine just running the way it is. So first off, if you want to upgrade the laser, they're probably going to have a lot of questions and have to requalify and all of these other things. So that's a hurdle, right, is that adoption hurdle. The second hurdle mm -hmm. is 
the just the material and the process physics, right? How much energy can I actually pump in? How much energy can it receive? And you mentioned the preheating, right? So I melt the material. There's some rapid cooling. Can we slow that cooling down or can we can we print at a higher temperature? So there's a lot of things around the material and the material properties. Not really my specialty, but I think that need to be considered. And then I'm going to say this for a lot of my friends in the casting industry. I don't think we're going to replace castings immediately with additive. I think castings are very important. I mean, I have an iPhone or you have a phone or a watch. There's a lot of pieces that have been either casted or injection molded or things like that. There's certain technologies that additive today and probably in the 5, 10, 15 years won't be able to replace that high volume production, right? If I'm making a million Honda Civics, I'm probably not going to use additive to make a bracket. I probably am going to use sheet metal or forming. So I think just from a research perspective, as well as someone who spent time in the casting industry, we need to use additive as a tool to help, a tool to help people in, in the casting space or in the other spaces and not think about it as a threat to replace it. I, I say this kind of jokingly as I want to give a shameless plug to this person. If you go follow Sarah Jordan on LinkedIn, she has Metallurgy Monday. She loves casting and she's kind of pioneer in the space where she's using additive technology and casting and kind of marrying them together in her AMIC process. And She's her and I were having a nice debate one day and she says, oh, you're just an additive guy. You don't know anything about castings. And I had to pause her and say, actually, I've been to uh, casting foundries on four different continents. Like I, I spent a lot of time around castings. And to me, and having spent a lot of time and energy while I was at Honda working on brake systems, really having a good understanding of castings is we're going to get, we're going to print faster. We're going to, we're going to make progress in that field, but there's still a need castings, forging, sheet metal, injection molding that, that is never going to go away. No, I, I totally agree. And, and I think that that comes for all conventional technologies, right? Mm -hmm. Additive is most likely, it's not going to replace injection molding. It's not going to replace any machining operations, but it's another belt tool in the tool belts of manufacturers. Oh. And there are certain applications where casting is not financially feasible because the volumes are still uh, too low or the lead times are uh, are challenging to to uh, to achieve or the or just there is there are no uh, no tools on stock and that's where yeah. these faster technologies can at least be economic enough where we can especially alleviate certain supply chain challenges like we're seeing with the uh, with the the navy submarine programs uh, and so on and so forth and these technologies uh, i believe can help us to get there faster um, to uh, to build that secondary supply chain and just another arm in the supply chain for, for some of these organizations. Yeah, it's a great topic. America makes Air Force, Navy. A lot of these organizations recognize the need for casting and casting replacements, castings they can no longer get or the guy who made the drawing has retired, right? So additive is is yeah. is helping a lot of people, and I think, like you said, additive is an, is another tool in the tool belt. And a lot of people, again, Air Force, Navy, America makes just had this big impact call that was awarded 
it's it's a hot topic right now. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it because I, I hear about it quite often, and I'm a, a you know a casting guy at heart, if you will. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I, I actually didn't know that. I did not know you were a, a, a casting guy. All right, one more technology I want to talk about, and it also falls into a different direction, which is which is speed, and that is cold metal fusion. You're also involved in uh, in certain projects in that space. Explain to us what's what's cold metal fusion. What's so interesting about it? Yeah. So first off, I'm gonna say I am not the expert when it comes to cold metal fusion. So uh, we're learning. We've been working on it for about six months. So there's probably a better person out there to say, hey, what is cold metal fusion? Or tell me the history about it. Earlier in the additive days, when people were doing polymer SLS, my understanding is they started to try to introduce metal. And they weren't actually fusing the metal. They were almost like sintering it, right? And then they'd have Mm -hmm. to put it in a sintering furnace to get full density. Well, 10, 15 years go by and the materials, the processes, and the polymers have gotten better. And so we're working with a company called HeadMade, and they provide a material, and basically the metal powder is encapsulated around uh, and has like a plastic jacket around it, if you will. And we put it into a polymer printer. We have a EOS P110 that we put this in, and we're using the low-powered laser. So when I say low-power, I'm talking like 20 watts. Mm-hmm. We're using low-power, high-speed to get us a near net shape part. And then there's a couple other stages, right? You go from having a green part to a brown part to a fully centered part. So after you take it off the machine, there's still a lot of post-processing that has to happen. But again, I think a lot of folks that have been around additive for quite a while probably tried this, spent a lot of time on it, maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago and didn't make progress. And it's coming back around, right? Because I said the materials and other things have, have evolved. So we've, we've seen some pretty good success. Now there's some things that are still working against you, right? So you're still got, you still have to deal with gravity, right? Gravity is not going away, uh, at least when we're printing here on earth. But so there's some challenges that come along with it. But uh, again, we've been doing it for six months. We got the printer over the summer in July and we're finalizing. We're going to present on it in April at the TRX at Colorado School of Mines will be our first presentation on it. So Michael Lander, who's a lead engineer on our team, um, he's done some phenomenal process development work and characterization work with this technology, as well as putting together a history lesson. So if I could call Michael and get him on the phone, he'd give us the history lesson around cold metal fusion. But I'm excited for him to present on it because he's really been driving it the last six months. Yeah, we should, uh, maybe that's also worth uh, a separate episode. Uh, but talking about history, it kind of reminds me of the, really the first metal laser powder bed fusion system, right? Where we didn't use a polymer, we used bronze as the, the medium to connect the metal particles. And we used a CO2 laser because there were no cost-effective fiber lasers uh, with enough wattage. Um, and then once fiber lasers were introduced, we were actually able to directly melt the, the metal material. So um, very similar process. And I, could, and I could imagine that also cold metal fusion could lend or borrow a lot of the post-processing experience that binder jetting has learned from uh, from its its challenges in debinding and sintering and getting green parts, turning green parts into final parts. 
I could imagine that there's some some something to to take from that technology. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think it's uh, Amy Elliott at Oak Ridge National Lab. She taught a course on binder jet and sintering and it's like a broad swath around it. And whenever I go to the conferences or trade shows, I always I like to take a class and learn and yeah. You know, part of me was like, oh, I know about that. But you can always learn something new. And I I had just learned about this back in October about the bronze and she was explaining it and it was it was fascinating. I had I did not know anything about that and why they use the bronze. And so yeah, Amy Elliott teaches this course around or has taught this course around centering center-based technologies and it was really enlightening, learned quite a bit. And I, I agree with you on the post-processing side. There's a lot that can be learned probably from the quality to the contamination and other things that can happen in the post-process. Mm-hmm. So I agree The there's going to be a lot of lessons learned that need to be captured and used. But yeah, 100%. Okay, perfect. So one thing you're super passionate about is workforce development influencing students to to get into additive manufacturing, which is a very important role of yourself and other educators out there. Because I think, as, as most of us know, we have a huge gap in the manufacturing workforce itself. Right? I think today at least half a million jobs are open uh, in that sector. What do you believe is key for the next generation of engineers? And we uh, probably have some listening right now that are trying to figure out how do I get into additive manufacturing? What are some of your experiences uh, in that uh, in that regard? I think probably the, the quick hit right right away is just go out and buy one of these cheap $100 3D printers. Hmm. So I printed my first part in 2009, and I just bought a 3D printer at home because for the longest time, Honda had these amazing printers that I would use when I was there. And I didn't like taking work home with me, so I never had a 3D printer at home. But now you can go to Micro Center and buy, a, I think it's the Ender 3 for $99. And so I, it's, it's, it's wild. And so that would be my first kickstart. And I even tell this, like someone comes to OSU and they say, Hey, I want to start metal 3d printing. And I always ask them like, Hey, have you tried plastic printing? Have you bought one of these FDM printers? Have you tried it? And most of the time they say, no, I've never tried it. I just want to print metal parts. And I said, okay. I always give them the homework. And probably only 50% of them actually go do it. I said, go buy a plastic printer and spend a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars and try it out because some of the basic practices are going to carry over. And as we're seeing more and more younger students in high school and junior high and K through 12 STEM, they're learning about 3d printing and there's curriculum being developed. I think in Tennessee, I saw that there's curriculum being developed all the way K through 12 for 3d printing. Uh, Kentucky, a friend of mine, Eric Wooleridge, is enrolling uh, to the community college network 3D printing class that you can go take. And I think you get a printer when you sign up for it. I don't know. But that's my first plug is just go buy one of these cheap printers. You either find out you love it or you hate it. And if anything, it it looks cool when you're doing a podcast like, oh, this guy must know about 3D printing because he has a 3D printer at home. I just bought it this year. (laughs) Should have launched this episode before Christmas. People could have put it on their Christmas list. Yeah. Uh, next yeah. year. Well, I won't offer a money back guarantee, but if they're listening to this and they go buy the hundred dollar printer and they absolutely hate it, I'll buy it from them and give it to one of my, we can give it to one of our students. So again, yeah, not money back guarantee, but I always tell people it's a hundred bucks. Go try it. See if you like it. I tell this to my students, same thing. And, and most of the time people love it. 
the, the cool little trinkets and toy. I mean, I print toys for my kid a couple days a week. Cool. Any other advice you have for the next generation of additive engineers? I think the two of the things that these have been helpful or successful advice for myself, like number one is find a mentor, right? Find someone that's been through it that, you know, just go have a cup of coffee with them and sit down and ask them questions. So that's always a, to me, I have parents from completely different backgrounds. Uh, my dad was blue collar, owned an industrial cleaning business. He was basically the janitor. And I have my mom who was a college professor PhD. And obviously they were married for 47 years and, but they had very different backgrounds, but they both, anytime I wanted to learn something, I want to work on cars or I want to race motocross. They always found me a mentor. Hey, go talk to this person. They seem to know what they're doing. And it's just so you're like around those people and you're rubbing elbows with them and you're learning about it. So finding a mentor And then the second thing is don't be afraid to, uh, to get your hands dirty. Kind of going back to buying the low cost printer is, you know, take it apart, fail, even your cell phone. If it breaks and you, you know, you're gonna throw it away, take it apart, cut it in half, look at it, see what's inside of it. So that's always another piece is I always say to people is, you know, try to try to understand how it works, get your hands dirty, get down in the weeds of what it is. Yeah. Like Steve Jobs said, stay curious, stay Curious. Yeah, I, like I actually it. have that tattooed on my arm. Yeah? No, I don't. Ah, uh, too bad. I, I almost uh, asked you to show it. Um, <laughs> all right. Last and final question, and that is, you've now been in the industry. You've been, uh, you are in uh, academia. You do research. What does the additive manufacturing industry need most right now to continue its growth, continue organic growth? You've obviously worked with various different companies. You work with high-performing teams that you assemble for certain grant proposals. What does the industry need? Yeah. Ooh, man. This is, uh, especially recently. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is January 2024, but the last three or four months, we've seen a lot of shakeup, right? We see some mm -hmm. news about 3D printing companies. Their stock is plummeting. You hear mergers and acquisitions. So what does it need most? I think, you know, wisdom and just mm -hmm. perspective, right? The last 30 years, 3D printing has really evolved. I don't know if it was 2009 or 2012. It was sometime around then. Barack Obama mentioned 3D printing and you can go back and look at it. And now all of a sudden the trajectory of 3D printing has completely changed. Yeah. So wisdom and perspective, right? Where have we come and where are we going? And a lot of people have said in the last couple of months, oh, 3D printing's in trouble. It's dying. There's too much hype. Uh. Well, that, I mean, if you look at the hype curve, we're just kind of in this strange time right now where money's really expensive, interest rates are high, and there's some contraction going on, and companies are struggling. And I'm not, I don't want to minimize that. Like, I feel bad for, like, I have a friend that got laid off, was looking for a job for six months. Mm hmm. But perspective and wisdom is history, looking where we've come and, and where do we want to go, right? How much faster do we want to print? What's important to make additive manufacturing successful? So I think that would be my answer is growing the industry, is keeping a, a, a very solid perspective. Maybe confidence, right? It's, it's, a, it's a term to add to that. I think, yeah, confidence. You know, 
Uh, I totally agree. I, I don't agree with any of the news articles that were written in the past few months uh, about the the doomsday of uh, of additive manufacturing. And I think the reason why I don't believe in it is because a we see so many successful companies that have implemented additive manufacturing that actually don't have a uh, have a point reached a point of no return. Right? There's certain applications in Siemens gas turbines that can only be printed. Right, and that is the key to efficiency for uh, for those companies. So, I think even just talking about or generalizing additive manufacturing is already the first mistake that a lot of people make. You have to even look at the the individual industries where additive is is being applied, like space, like aviation, like like energy, where it is a hundred percent a key piece of their manufacturing ecosystem. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned didn't mention biomedical, but yeah, another one. Yeah, I mean, my yeah. dad had three hip replacements. <laughs> he yeah. only had two hips, but he had it replaced three times. So there's certain yeah, and- things that aren't possible without 3D printing. And yeah. I think, like you said, whether it's confidence or or be unshakable, have perspective. You know, look at people with wisdom and and try to have a good uh, you know like you said, confident outlook that, yeah, we're in a contraction period, but it doesn't mean it's the doomsday. Like no. you mentioned the Siemens energy. That's a great example of making their product more efficient and using 3d printing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And you know, additive is not alone. There's other industries right now. SAS that is, uh, is struggling due to money being expensive. And therefore, uh, even though we weren't in a recession, at least in the United States, we were, I think in a B2B recession, and uh, that definitely also impacts additive manufacturing technologies. But I think uh, it's a new year, as you said, 2024, and I'm very confident into in the in the future and in the in the uh, in the industry's capability to really continue to push ahead. So let's wrap up this episode, Ben. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. You know, it's sometimes a little difficult to, as we just said, look beyond the the news headlines and the marketing lingo. So it's really awesome to have somebody like yourself who is very deep in the research of additive manufacturing and understands where the technology is today and, and where it's going. Yeah, that's why, as I said, when we kicked off this episode, it's very deserved that America Makes made you an ambassador of this technology. So thanks for being here. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Fabian. Always great to catch up, my friend, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Texas sometime soon. And yeah, hopefully this was enjoyable for those that were listening. It was really, really exciting. And I think additive is is a great industry. If you're if you're listening to this, yeah, like Fabian said, there's doom and gloom every season of life, but there is some exciting things and some really bright stories happening. So I'm excited for these students that we're working with at OSU. We have 35 students working in metal additive right now. Wow. We have 135 students on payroll in advanced manufacturing that are working, that are going to be in the industry within one to three years. Like, so I'm excited about that, right? We need advanced manufacturing. So I'm, I'm just adding a little bit of a call to action to close this out because, yeah, we're in this season of doom and gloom, but there's a bright future. I see these students. I hear the questions that they ask. It makes me excited because when they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I know we're heading in the right place. Yeah. This is just the beginning of the additive industry. To our listeners out there, thanks for tuning in today. This was a super fun episode with Ben. Uh, if you liked it, please share it on LinkedIn, 
Instagram, whatever uh, platform you're on. And stay tuned for, for more captivating stories. We'll release new episodes again every week. Until then, I'm Fabian Alefeld, and this was Added a Snack. <laughs>